There's a new character that emerges right away, seemingly from nowhere. The chapter begins by saying, now, there was this one guy. Uh, and it says, now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. <laughs> so Boaz gets introduced with a kind of fanfare, right? Uh, we're supposed to see that he's a really important guy. Pay attention, y'all. It says he's a worthy man. And in Hebrew, that's Gibor Chayil. Gibor Chayil. That is the best title that any man in the Bible can get. It means a mighty man of valor. So do you remember King David? He had his mighty men. 30 men who were like his marines. They went against thousands of Philistines and they killed them. 30 men. They are called Gibor Chayil. The mighty men of valor. Now, Boaz here isn't a warrior, he's a farmer. Um, but he has that same kind of character. He's a man of strength and courage and integrity. In Yiddish, he's a real mensch. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, and, and there's something else that's special about Boaz, which um, we don't know here, but the original audience probably would have known. Uh, he has a very special mother. Does anyone know who Boaz's mother was? Okay, Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Look at that. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Genealogy of Jesus. Who was Boaz's mother? John Perry. Rahab. Very good. Okay, Rahab was the woman in Jericho, the Canaanite woman who, um, who shielded the spies and protected them. Rahab was the first foreigner we know of to come into the people of Israel. She came in, right? She was Boaz's mom. So this guy is predisposed to welcome the foreigner. He knows what it's like to be an outsider. Um, so he is perfectly set up to be the man of the story. Okay, so uh, we see another parallel here between chapters 1 and 2, the two journeys, okay? Both journeys give the game away in verse 1 as to where the destination is. Chapter 1, verse 1, sets up Moab as the destination of the first journey. And chapter 2, verse 1, sets up Boaz as the destination of the second journey. So again, we've gone there and back again. Let's watch what happens. So first, it's Ruth who has the big idea. Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Go, my daughter. Okay, so here we see that it's Ruth who takes the initiative for saving their lives. It's her idea to go. It's not Naomi's idea. Naomi is entirely passive in this opening scene. She's a hopeless and defeated woman. Her spirit is crushed. So, notice this. When a mother is happy, especially a Jewish mother, you see her giving orders to her household and advice to her friends and generally telling everybody else what to do. So, if she's not doing that, there's something deeply wrong here. She's so passive. She's not in a good place. Not only is the native Israelite, she should be the one who knows the law. She should be the one taking the lead in their situation, but she's not doing it. Ruth is taking the initiative while Naomi stands by defeated. So Ruth puts her hope in the word of God, of Israel's God, in the law of Moses. Now we talked about this a couple of weeks back. Do you remember Leviticus 19? Talking about you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you shall be holy because I am holy. Within that passage, it talks about the law that's going to save their lives. 
God commanded in the law of Moses that all his people leave a margin around their fields at harvest time for the poor and the sojourner. And he commanded in his law that they don't pick up the gleanings of the harvest. So the harvesters come by and they bundle up as much of the corn as they can bundle up, but they're inevitably going to drop some pieces on the ground. That's the gleanings. All right? Any sensible farmer has a second team to pick those up. God says, don't do that. Don't pick it up. Leave it on the ground. The poor and the sojourner will get it, and they won't starve. So God's law provides for this situation. Ruth knows it's all about her. She is both poor and a sojourner. The law applies to her twice over, and she reads it, and she knows that. So she puts her hope in the word of God. Now think about it. Moab didn't have that law. Nobody else had that law. No other nation on earth had any kind of law for protecting the poor like that. So she's been doing her homework. She's read about the law of her new God. She knows what he says to do in her situation. All right, so um, Ruth goes out. You can, you can come now. Ruth went off into the field. Um, she, she went out full of hope and trust, right? She's confident in her new God and in his law that provides for her. And she's also confident in God's people. She's confident that somebody nearby will obey this law, will put it into practice. So right here we see her putting into practice the very thing that she promised to do in chapter 1. Okay, children in children's church, do we have any of those? What's the thing that um, Ruth promised to Naomi? Your... Your God will be my God, and your people will be mine. Great. It's Can, been a week. It's been a week. Can the children remember that? Should we get together? Your God will be my God, and your people be my people. Right? Is she putting that into practice right now? Absolutely she is. Trust in God. Trust in God's people. Now how tragic this story would be if her beautiful childlike confidence had been disappointed. So thank God for Boaz. The next thing we hear about is Ruth arriving in Boaz's field. Verse 3 says, She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. She happened, as luck would have it. And you can almost see the grin on the storyteller's face as he says that, right? Uh, because he knows, and we know, that there's no such thing as chance. Uh, instead, God has been guided, and Ruth has been guided to green pastures by a good shepherd. And God has cleared her whole path there, hasn't he? He's paved every step of the way. He's written the law that provides for it. He's raised up the man who follows that law. He's led to the need that she's going to go there. No part of this story is left to chance. No part at all. <coughs> so God provides the opportunity for Ruth. And Ruth seizes that opportunity with both hands. She works hard. So later on, the foreman is going to come out and talk to Boaz about Ruth. And do you remember what he's going to say? Verse 7. The foreman's going to say of Ruth, she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Okay, this is the foreman in charge of the servants. His job is to get the servants to work hard, to get more work out of them. And the foreman is impressed with her. The foreman says, she's working really hard. Um, so, um, and then later on, Boaz is impressed with her too. So Ruth's godly character the same character that stood up and made those promises in chapter 1 is now on display in practice in chapter 2. Okay, imagine Ruth keeping working, but you can have to see that. 
All right. Okay, now we're going to talk about Boaz. Boaz comes out to the field. Stand up, Boaz. The very first thing out of Boaz's mouth to his servants is, The Lord be with you. We've got, we've got three kinds of responses to that. Uh, so Boaz is clearly the first Anglican in the Bible. Um, just kidding, just kidding. But this reading shows us right away that he's a good and godly man, a God-fearing man. The very first word out of his mouth in this story is the name of God. And he's a faithful man who encourages faithfulness in all his household. So you guys can all get to play uh, Boaz and Servants right now. The response is, the Lord bless you. Okay, let's try again. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Great. So that's a really loving response from the servants, right? He, the master comes out and they want to, uh, to call God's blessing on him, uh, which means they love their master. And guys, whenever you see uh, servants who love their master, employees who love their boss, you can be sure that that person's a really good man. Because um, there's no pretense in that relationship. The worker sees how their boss behaves when he or she has all the advantage and no accountability. So they see the real person. And Boaz's servants love him. It's hard not to love Boaz. He's just such a mensch. <laughs> Alright, so um, a couple of years ago, um, I was staying with some friends in their house, uh, they're married and they have children, and uh, I was puttering around in their kitchen, making myself some lunch, and I discovered on the top of their fridge that there was this little doll, this like plastic figure, it was about a foot high, uh, the doll was this handsome, smiling man, wearing a blue shirt and khaki pants, and, uh, and he had a label on him that read, Mr. Wonderful. <laughs> so I was wondering whose doll this was, whether it was belong to one of the kids. Um, and my friend's wife came into the kitchen and she saw me holding Mr. Wonderful. Um, and she laughed and she explained that actually it was her doll. It had been uh, a joke. Uh, some girlfriends had sent this to her. Um, and she told me, uh, squeeze his tummy and listen to what he said. <laughs> All right, so I did. Um, and Mr. Wonderful had 16 wonderful <laughs> phrases, uh, including, um, did you have a hard day, honey? Why don't you sit down and let me rub your feet? <laughs> and he squeezes him again. And he says, you've been on my mind all day. That's why I bought you these flowers. <laughs> Here, you take the remote control. As long as I'm with you, I don't care what you want. <laughs> Actually, I'm not sure which way to go here. I'm going to pull over and ask for some directions. <laughs> and, uh, my personal favorite was the speaker when he says, yes, dear. <laughs> so uh, we both had a really good laugh about Mr. Wonderful. And then I pretty much forgot all about him. Until I started reading about Boaz this week, um, and I noticed an uncanny resemblance. Uh, Boaz is a bit like a real-life Mr. Wonderful. Uh, in this chapter, he says a series of incredibly kind and thoughtful things to read, and I counted ten of them. Uh, so I want us to count them out together. Go ahead, right. Sure you're welcome to lean in my fields. One! Everybody. Why don't you stay here all day? Two. I've ordered all my servants to keep you safe. Three. If you get thirsty, you can drink from the water jugs we brought up. Four. I know who you are. I've paid attention to your story. Five. You've behaved honorably, 
and you deserve honor. Six. May the Lord bless you and reward you. Seven. You look hungry. Come and sit with us at lunch. Eight. Here's bread and here's wine. Eat as much as you like. Nine. Take some home with you. He's got over. When she gleans in the afternoon, see that she takes home a little extra. Ten. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so this is such incredible over-the-top kindness. Boaz takes care of her in every imaginable way. It's almost overwhelming. Um, and then if you, look, if you look at verse 15 in chapter 2, the last kind thing that Boaz does was probably a secret from Ruth, right? Boaz privately instructed his young man in verse 15. He said, let her glean even among the sheets and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her, right? So it's a secret. This last kindness is my favorite. He quietly gives her extra, and she might not even know. Uh, this part really moves me. It makes me want to cry. It's so generous. Um, Boaz went so far above and beyond the requirements of the law, and he didn't even seem to want Ruth to know. It's a secret kindness. He cut into his own profits, and not so that he'd look good, not for the TV appearances or the interviews or the tax write-off. He just cared about Ruth. And his heart was moved to help her out, whether or not she even knew it. So uh, he does remind me quite a lot of Mr. Wonderful. Uh, but obviously, Boaz is another thing entirely uh, from that silly toy. Boaz is pretty much the only man in the Old Testament who doesn't do a single thing wrong. He's in the Bible for three entire chapters and doesn't screw up. Uh, he can't deserve some kind of medal. Um, so you've got to admire Boaz. In one day, he completely rescued Ruth, and he also turned Naomi's life around, as we're going to see in our last scene. So the third part is when Ruth comes home again. <laughs> Ruth came home from a single day in the fields with about an ether of beaten barley. An ether! That's about 29 pounds of barley. Uh, that's six of those great big bags of flour from Publix. Um, that's a lot of barley, plus all the leftovers from her delicious lunch. So it's no wonder that Naomi was astonished to see her. Naomi, you're going to welcome her home. <laughs> where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. All right, so I want to really drive home how profoundly this one day changed Naomi's heart. It really brought her back to life. In chapter 1, her husband Elimelech died, and her sons Marlon and Kilion died, and figuratively Naomi died with them. Her heart died. All that tragedy got the better of her. So we find her at the beginning of chapter 2, bitter and crushed and passive. But here, at the end of the day, she's full of hope and joy. She thanks God and she looks ahead to a bright future under his care. And we see the effect of the change. 
by the way she starts taking leadership of their lives again. So in chapter 3, it's going to be Naomi who has all the ideas. She makes the plans and takes the initiative. So the mother-in-law is back in the director's chair. And everything's right with the world. It's really an amazing transformation. It's really a kind of resurrection of her heart and spirit. So I want to think about how it happened. What was it that Ruth brought home? You guys can sit. Um, so Ruth brought home plenty of food, that's for sure. She brought home food for many days. They weren't going to starve. But much more importantly, Ruth brought home good news. Good news. There's a godly man who cares for us, and he proves that God cares for us. And surely it's the good news that brought Naomi's heart back to life. This is the point I want to close with today. We all go through seasons where our spirits are crushed, where we're sick of heart and depressed and despairing like Naomi. And we just don't have any hope that anything's going to get better. And we run out of energy to even keep trying. So what's the answer? The answer is that our hearts need to hear good news. And to keep hearing it. To be reminded of the God who cares for us and shows us kindness. His kindness is strength to our bones. We all long for a Boaz figure to walk into our lives, a Mr. Wonderful to notice us and care about us and raise us up. And friends, our good news is that we have one. We have a lover of our souls called Jesus. And in every way that Boaz is good, Jesus is better. Boaz said that Ruth was welcome in his field. Jesus says that we're welcome. Boaz said that she could stay all day. Jesus says we can stay forever. Boaz gave her water to drink to sustain her in the heat. Jesus gives us the everlasting water of his Holy Spirit so that we never thirst again. Boaz welcomed her to his table and fed her bread and wine. Jesus welcomes us to his table. This very day and feeds us with his own body and blood. And who can possibly know every single day the times that Jesus scatters invisible kindness in our heart, the extra pieces of grain that come from his own harvest for us to collect along the way. So as good as Boaz was, Jesus is better. He's so much better. And as much superior to Boaz as Boaz was to the silly plastic Mr. Wonderful. And if the good news of Boaz was enough to bring Naomi's heart back to life, then surely the good news we have in Jesus is enough to resurrect our hearts and spirits. To bring us back, even from the worst tragedy or setback or disappointment, our God is kind, and he will fix this. He'll make it better than it ever was. We have good news. And this good news, this gospel, is what he's given us to sustain us while we wait for while we wait through the good days and the bad days. So we need to hold on to it tightly and not forget it and never let it go. And we need to keep it fresh and vibrant in our hearts. So, what is it that speaks the good news to your heart? Is it a certain passage of scripture? Is it a song on the radio? Or a chapter of a certain book? Or a prayer that you pray every day? Or is it getting away to a certain place or being quiet at a certain time of day? What is it that speaks the good news to your heart. I think that will be different for each one of us. But what situation does the good news move you? How does it reach you and break you open and make you cry? We need to find those situations and we need to put ourselves in them 
whenever we can. Because this good news of our kind Saviour is what's going to sustain our hearts 